Well, in the ancient Near East, shepherds and shepherding played a crucial role in the life and culture. A shepherd was known for being diligent, hardworking, and demonstrating tender care and compassion for his sheep. He protected them and provided for them at all costs. A shepherd was also known for having authority over his sheep. And in addition to that authority, exercising consistent leadership. In fact, many ancient kings who ruled and reigned over nations and empires were oftentimes called shepherds of their people. Some of which even carried crooks to picture their care for their people. And it was even common for certain gods to be given shepherding titles. But as you read Scripture, it doesn't take long to notice that shepherds and shepherding play a consistent role in the biblical narrative. In fact, there's a profound concept woven throughout all of Scripture, and that is known as the shepherd-leader motif. A motif is simply a distinctive feature or a particular pattern found in God's Word. This means that throughout the story of redemption, from Genesis to Revelation, certain characters in the biblical narrative are presented as shepherd leaders. Those who oversee, those who tend to, and those who care for God's people or care for God's flock. In fact, God himself says that he is a shepherd and that he will search for his sheep and take care of them. Ezekiel 34, 11. But the Bible often uses shepherd language as a striking metaphor to picture leadership in general, but in particular, pastoral leadership. Several Old Testament scholars have demonstrated that shepherding imagery goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, with men such as Abel, who brought from the firstborn of his flock, Genesis 4, 4. And Abraham, who was rich in livestock, Genesis 13, 2. In fact, if you read through Genesis, you'll find this shepherd-leader motif is woven throughout the entire narrative. Of course, in the Old Testament, this motif continues with a certain man named Moses. And then it extends all the way to King David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And even during the time of Jeremiah... God indicts the leaders of Israel for their failure to lead his people according to God's ways. Now, Jeremiah 23.1 puts it this way. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. And of course, there are many other texts in the Old Testament that we could highlight, but one text rises to the top. The Lord is my shepherd. When you turn to the New Testament, God raises up shepherd leaders to care for Christ's church. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says of elders that they are to shepherd the flock of God. It's interesting, if you do a word study there on the Greek word for elders, it comes from the root word scopus, where we get our English word microscope. In other words, New Testament shepherds or elders 
are pictured as inspecting at a microscopic level the sheep that have been entrusted to them to love, to care, and to protect them. When it comes to the Apostle Paul, he was a first-rate shepherd leader. He was responsible for three or possibly four missionary journeys, traversing the ancient world, planting churches, leading churches, strengthening churches, and laboring alongside churches. He relentlessly shepherded the flock of God, and he did so in season and out of season, in person and from afar. He was committed to teaching them sound doctrine. He was committing to refusing those who contradicted. And he preached Christ and him crucified with the goal of wanting every single member, everyone included in the flock, according to Galatians 4, of being conformed to Christ. Ephesians 4 tells us he wanted all people in the church to be mature in Christ. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11 goes as far as to say that Paul, even in the absence of people face to face, even in the absence of churches face to face, that he had a deep concern for the churches. But as we've discovered so far in 1 Thessalonians, because of the schemes and devices of that serpent of old, the devil, Satan himself, Paul at this time was unable to be with the Thessalonians. He could not travel to them. He longed and he desired to see them face to face, but was hindered. Now, it wasn't quite clear what kind of roadblock Satan had been using, metaphorically speaking, but he had schemed and he had acted in such a way that the Apostle Paul himself was hindered from traversing the ancient world and getting to the beloved Thessalonians whom he loved dearly. Last week when we were together, we we discovered together that Paul's desire to see them was there. Justin preached last time through the final verses of chapter 2, and that chapter says just as much. But in simple terms, although the desire was there, he could not actually get there. So what did the Apostle Paul do next? What solution does he come up with? Well, Paul's solution to visit the Thessalonians was ultimately found in sending Timothy. Let's read the text we'll be studying together this evening. You follow along, picking up in verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer... We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for the fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. 
These verses give us a penetrating look into the heart of the Apostle Paul as shepherd leader. Paul, along with Silas and along with Timothy, they diligently found a solution to the problem of Paul's not being able to travel back to Thessalonica. And that solution was to send Timothy. And as Paul explains that Timothy is sent in his place as his substitute, we find a series of qualities that mark Paul as a faithful, effective shepherd leader. These qualities were certainly exhibited by Paul. Uh, This is how he operated in ministry. And they were no doubt present in the life of Timothy, or they wouldn't have sent Timothy. But these qualities are also true of every faithful shepherd leader. But if we aren't careful, we can easily chalk up this text as if it's only relevant to those serving in pastoral ministry or in some sort of leadership role in the church. But as we'll see together, these qualities of a shepherd leader are in fact qualities of a faithful biblically sound Christian. Well, the first quality of a shepherd leader is that he has great affections for Christ's flock. He has great affections for Christ's flock. Now look at verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it, no longer... So here in verse 1, Paul uses the conjunction translated therefore to connect us with his previous thought. In particular, that he has the greatest longing and desire to see the Thessalonians. But if you look at verse 17 of chapter 2 and on into verse 18, we are told that Satan hindered them. Paul's longing and desire at this point is at an all-time high. Uh, This wasn't an every other week or an every other month desire, but we're told from the text that it was constant. In fact, Paul uses a participle here to show that this longing and this affection and this desire never ceased. Endured, by the way, it means to stand or to bear. You could say it this way. We couldn't stand it any longer. That's where the Apostle Paul was. In fact, if you look down at verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul says the same thing again, when I could endure it no longer. So chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins by saying, I can't endure this any longer. We have to find a solution. And chapter 3, verse 5 says the same thing as well. Now, this paragraph is literally bookended by the fact that Paul longs and desires to see his people. And if you just glance your eyes over uh, verses 1 through 4, you'll notice these verses are written in the plural. So there was a great longing and affection not only by Paul, but even Silas and Timothy. And then he switches to singular pronouns in verse 5, 
to slap an exclamation on the point at the end to say, look, yeah, this is a collective emotion and affection that we have for you, but just so you know, this is coming personally from me. It has been rightly said that these men did not love the church only when they were face to face with them. They carried these believers in their hearts. This is a quality of a shepherd leader, that they have great affections for the flock of God. Uh, But let me ask you this evening, do you have affections for God's people? Do you love God's people? And to be even more pointed, do you love the flock here at Countryside? Do you love the brothers and sisters that the Lord has saved and brought to this local assembly, to this local church? Do you long to be with them on the Lord's day during corporate worship? I'm I'm assuming yes, because you're here this evening. But do you long to be with them on the Lord's day to worship our God together? Do you make a concerted effort to connect with others? Uh, Do you fellowship in a biblical sense? Uh, Do you share a common life with those whom you're seated next to? Uh, Do you pray for them? Do you study the scriptures with them? That's the type of leadership and shepherding that Paul was exercising over the churches he interacted with, and that was true in his relationship with the Thessalonians. So shepherds have great affections for Christ's flock. We're also told in this text that Paul had a firm commitment to biblical wisdom. Another quality that we find in this text of shepherd leaders is that they have a firm, a strong, and unbreakable commitment to biblical wisdom. I mean, you could insert there a commitment to the Scripture This plays out in several ways in this text. First of all, implementing biblical wisdom, Paul and company here, they carefully planned. They carefully planned. Now notice verse 1, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. So Paul and his companions longed to see their brethren and were severely hindered. But rather than making an off-the-cuff decision or giving way to knee-jerk reactions, we're told here in this text, in the plural, we thought it was best. They collectively, as a unit, determined a biblical course of action to find a solution to get to Thessalonica. This is the biblical pattern, by the way. As I've already mentioned, I believe Paul intentionally uses the plural to demonstrate he wasn't operating by his wisdom alone, but he was operating under a plurality, a plurality of godly men. And if you search Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that this is the pattern that our Lord has laid out consistently. A plurality of biblical men using godly wisdom to make decisions. In fact, if you were just to survey the Proverbs, 
Proverbs gives ample evidence that wisdom amongst a multiplicity is what is desired. Now jot down these references and review them this week. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs 24.6 says, For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. So Paul and his crew collectively assessed their current situation, and they determined to move forward in their pursuit of interacting face-to-face with the Thessalonians. Notice again the expression, we thought it best. Uh, This means considered something as good or worthy of a choice. Uh, Put another way, they were determined. Uh, They were resolved. Uh, They were all in. Well, what do they think it was best to do? It's interesting, after all of that collective wisdom, where did they land? Look at verse 1 again. It was best to be left behind at Athens alone. So at some point while Paul was in Athens, Silas and Timothy had made their way to him. They traveled there, and it was at that point that they carefully planned what they should do. Next, they strategically delegated. They operated with biblical wisdom, and then they strategically delegated. Look at verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ. Paul's solution to visit Thessalonica wasn't for him to go. It wasn't even for Silas to go. It was to send Timothy as his substitute. Paul knew it wasn't wise to go. Now, neither Acts nor 1st or 2nd Thessalonians give us details or a precise statement about the exact nature of Satan's hindrance of Paul's ministry. I mean, we can speculate all we want, but the fact of the matter is, in God's wisdom, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that information was withheld. However, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they deemed that it was appropriate for Timothy to be the one to take his place. Now, I think healthy speculation would be helpful There are a couple options as to why it was Timothy and not Paul. First off, Timothy most likely wasn't as popular as Paul. That's just a fact. Paul was a major influence in the first century. Not that Timothy wasn't, but after all, the Apostle Paul is an apostle. 
It's also true that Timothy was of Greek descent. His father was Greek. So he didn't look like a Jew as Paul did. He wouldn't have been as recognizable as Paul would have been. But in addition to those two reasons, Paul sending Timothy actually marked Paul's ministry. Paul sending Timothy was part of their interaction with churches in the ancient world. Paul sent Timothy to minister in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul sent him to minister to the Philippians, Philippians 2, 19. And then Paul sent him to minister in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1, 3. So delegation amongst the Apostle Paul has always been part of his ministry because this, in fact, is biblical ministry, being able to delegate. Now, you can jot down in your notes if you want to review it this week, but you're familiar with the text, Exodus chapter 18. Jethro steps up to Moses and he tells Moses, hey, look, you can't do all of this leading of the nation by yourself. It's just not going to work out that way. You will wear yourself out. That's what the text tells us. So Jethro says, appoint other men for those tasks. Jethro said, teach them God's law so they will walk in it because there is much work to do. So not only is there a shepherd leader motif all throughout Scripture, but you could argue that there's a a delegation motif. Godly leaders delegating to other godly leaders. So Paul and company, they delegate Timothy to go. And it's not as if, you know, Timothy was kicking and screaming. <laughs> he, he was in on the discussion. He agreed that that was the best situation to keep the interaction with the Thessalonians face to face. But who was Timothy? Who was Timothy? Well, first off, Paul identifies him as our brother. Paul intentionally uses the word brother to identify Timothy as one who is part of the family of God, a one who has repented of his sins and trusted solely in Jesus Christ for salvation. Because that is true of Timothy and everyone that has believed upon Jesus Christ, at that moment, Timothy was adopted into the family of God. He was a brother in Christ. This is true of every Christian. If you are here tonight, you have been adopted into the family of God. Timothy had a Greek father. He had a Jewish mother. We're told from 2 Timothy that his mother and grandmother were committed to teaching him the scriptures and training young Timothy in them. Parents, grandparents, that is a pattern that should be followed. Parents, you ought to be shepherding, shepherding your kids in the scriptures. Grandparents, besides spoiling them, you should also be shepherding them in the scriptures. Timothy received massive benefit of being trained in the Word of God, ultimately fulfilling that Deuteronomy 6 passage of training up your children in the way of the Lord, in the law of God. Timothy traveled alongside Paul 
on his missionary journeys. He's mentioned several times in several letters of the New Testament, and he's mentioned in such a way where he was with Paul when Paul was authoring some of the epistles. Now, but what is more important than a brief physical biography of Timothy is his spiritual biography. Paul called him a brother in Christ. But he's more than just a brother. Paul identifies him as God's worker. And he says he is God's worker in the gospel of Christ. Now, if you were to gather together all of the ancient Greek manuscripts, and there's a lot of them, roughly 25,000, if you were to gather together all of those ancient manuscripts, and you were to lay them out, and you were to look at the Greek text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, some would read God's fellow worker in Greek, and others would read God's servant. Here in our text, in the NAS, it says God's worker, God's fellow worker. But other manuscripts read God's servant, most likely because some of the scribes that were copying the scriptures didn't like the fact that it sounded as if Paul was saying that Timothy was equal to God, so they may have inserted God's servant, God's deacon, you could say. But regardless of where the textual tradition lands, both are good readings. Both convey exactly what Paul is trying to get across. Paul is simply trying to express that not only is he a brother in Christ, not only is he in the family of God, but he is a fellow worker, a fellow servant in the gospel. Paul does this to set Timothy apart. Not to say that he's some higher level Christian, that he is part of Paul's inner circle whom Paul is confident to send forth to the churches. And as Paul served and as he toiled and labored in ministry, so it was with Timothy. So in one sense, they were equals. So Timothy was a worthy substitute whom Paul treasured and highly valued. The fact that Paul inserts labels such as brother and God's worker highlights Timothy's special place in Paul's own heart. You know, so this passage is teaching us about Paul's affection for his flock, but but here we see, even if it is only a hint, we see Paul's affection for Timothy. You see, Paul didn't limit his affections for certain Christians. Paul loved anybody that professed the name of Christ and who had truly been redeemed under the banner of Jesus as Lord. But now we have to ask, all right, we found a solution. We're sending Timothy, but why? Why was Timothy sent? Well, Paul sends him to encourage growth. And notice verse 2, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Paul wasn't bored and wanted to just hear a random report of the Thessalonians. 
and their life. He wanted to hear of their faith and give massive encouragement to strengthen and encourage. Uh, Put this way, he wanted them to be established in the Christian faith. Remember, this church is a young church. Although their faith is sounding forth in the ancient world, they are young in Christ. So he wanted to establish them in the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith so that they might live the Christian faith. You may not be familiar with the Petronas Twin Towers in Malaysia, but they are an interlinked pair of 88-story super-tall skyscrapers in Malaysia, standing and soaring at 1,483 feet. For some time, they had been the largest buildings in the world. But what's even more profound about the height of the Petronas Towers is the fact that these buildings were built on the world's deepest foundation. 104 concrete piles ranging, and listen to this, from 197 to 374 feet deep were bored into the ground. 374 feet deep. The concrete raft or the foundation is comprised over 470,000 cubic feet of concrete. And just to give you an idea of how much concrete that is, that concrete slab, if you want to call it that, was continuously poured for 54 hours per tower. A lot of concrete. But those concrete piles go 374 feet deep. Paul desired to send Timothy to be the human instrument to encourage the Thessalonians' growth and to ensure their foundation in the Christian life was as deep as it could possibly go. They had the Holy Spirit, according to chapter 1, verse 6. They had the Word of God, according to chapter 2, verse 13. And that Word, by the power of the Spirit, was already effectively working in them. But Paul says to excel and abound even more. Paul sends Timothy to this healthy church to tell them, don't stop there. Continue progressing in your faith. Go deeper in your understanding of doctrine. Go deeper in your understanding of theology. Have a profound and greater love for Christ. Now let me ask you again, what measures are you taking to make sure that you are growing in the faith and that you are established as Paul is sending Timothy to establish the Thessalonians? Are you one of those concrete piles or one of those concrete pillars that that barely scratches the surface? Uh, Maybe that's true of you because you are new in the faith. Or maybe that's true in you because you just haven't weaned off of the milk of the word and onto the meat. 
Uh, That could be the spiritual situation you're currently in. Or are you constantly digging in? Are you constantly digging down 374 feet deep to make sure that your faith is never shaken? That's why Paul sent Timothy. And I believe we are a healthy church like the Thessalonians were. But Paul, even to the healthy church, says go deeper. Go deeper. Be so firmly grounded that nothing that you face in this life will shake you. So Paul, as shepherd leader, he's demonstrating his great affections for his people. And then he's determined to lead them based on a firm commitment to biblical wisdom. But there's a third quality that Paul demonstrates. And it is absolute confidence in God's purposes. Absolute confidence in God's purposes. Look at verse 3. So this strengthening and encouraging to your faith, here's why. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Here, we find why the Thessalonians needed strengthened and why the Thessalonians needed encouraged. They needed it because of the onslaught that they were facing from the culture, from the pagans, from those who worshipped idols. They were afflicting and persecuting the Thessalonians. This was all coming from their hometown. It's as as if they left their homes and would go out into the public sphere and the persecution would come. Or they would meet in their homes and the persecution would come. I mean, that's really what we see in the book of Acts at the founding of this church. Remember, the church was founded and then not much later, they were driven out of town by a riot. (laughs) Then they went to another town and what happened? Yeah, the mob followed them there and drove them out of town. So these Thessalonians, although they were rich in the faith, the persecution was at an all-time high. Paul sends Timothy to encourage and make sure that their foundation is rock solid. If you put yourself in the first century at this church, and more broadly in Macedonia, Macedonia was a melting pot for gods, little g, and paganism. And the church of Thessalonica that had been dropped down right in the middle of that culture was a God-honoring Jesus is Lord church, which was antithetical to everything that they saw in that region. The Thessalonians were still in that world, but they weren't of it. And they needed strengthen. Notice verse 3 again. Paul says, don't be disturbed by these afflictions. Uh, Disturbed has the idea of being unsettled, uh, to be upset. In summation, Paul is saying, the more established you are, the less shaken you will be by affliction. 
Notice verse 3. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul, in clear terms, he says that afflictions and sufferings are inevitable for the Christian. Unavoidable. Inescapable. Notice how he presents that truth. You yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Brothers and sisters, this is a mark of a Christian. This is part of our life. This is how we live. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It was happening in the first century to the Thessalonians and it will happen to us today. Leon Morris commentating on this passage, he puts it this way. Tribulation is not to be wondered at by Christian people as though some strange and usual thing felt befell them. Under the conditions of this world, with so many opposed to the gospel, tribulation is inevitable. But what we must understand, brothers and sisters, is that suffering and affliction are at the heart of the gospel. The sinless God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, he suffered the most unjust, unlawful death that anyone has ever faced. In fact, it was Acts 2 that tells us that Christ was delivered into lawless hands by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 2. It was Acts chapter 4 that says that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all of them put Jesus on the cross as was predetermined and purposed beforehand. It was the sufferings of the person of Jesus Christ on that cross that purchased our salvation, your salvation, and anyone who would ever believe in him. It is a gospel of suffering, marked primarily by our Lord Jesus Christ, but in addition to him, it's a gospel that all of those who are in Christ will also experience as it relates to suffering. And if you don't know Christ, don't let that alarm you. It was because of his sufferings on the cross that he bought redemption for those that would believe upon him. And if you repent from your sins and you come to him this evening, he will by no wise cast you out. He will offer forgiveness of sins for you because He is the only way to eternal life. But you'll see here as Paul continues that such news of suffering and affliction wasn't really news. Look at verse 4. It wasn't new news. For indeed, when we were with you, We kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. 
You know, Paul's point here isn't that tribulation is coming. Although he clearly told and warned them that it would. But his point is they needed to be established. So they wouldn't be shaken. Another commentator says, Persecution then was not to be a cause for falling away from the faith, but a reason for adhering to it with even greater tenacity. I mean, that's the big picture of what Paul is trying to get at here. Paul isn't mentioning persecution here in these two verses to scare people away from the faith. He's letting them know that it will happen to give them confidence that they are living in a manner that would be worthy of our suffering Savior. Paul has absolute confidence in God's purposes, and our God will use suffering to accomplish his end goal. Well, this text gives us one more quality of a shepherd leader, a fourth and final quality. And that is that shepherd leaders have deep concern for spiritual matters. Deep concern for spiritual matters. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would have been in vain. Now you'll notice here in verse 5 that Paul shifts to singular pronouns. Remember, he's been operating under we or us. But now he shifts to single himself out. Why? Well, he had been demonstrating that a plurality of men weighed in on the decision to send Timothy. We've already established that reality. But now he wants the Thessalonians to know personally that he himself is dying to hear of their faith. He sent Timothy so the Thessalonians could be established, and he sent Timothy so Timothy could bring him back a report. The singular pronouns demonstrate that Paul is signing on the dotted line. He's notarizing the document. He's letting them know that he is deeply concerned and committed to spiritual matters, in particular, their spiritual health. Look at verse 5. I could endure it no longer. And then he goes on to say, I need to find out. I love Paul's desire here. I love his affection I love that he longs with all of his being to be with these brothers and sisters. I mean, this is a perfect model for us to imitate. Now, when was the last time that you checked with a brother or sister in Christ to see how they were doing in the faith? You know, he's not just saying hello. Hey, Timothy, tell them hello. That would be great. And I'm sure Timothy did. But he sent Timothy to check on their spiritual health. He wanted some type of gauge, some type of barometer on how they were doing in the faith. How often do we check on the spiritual well-being of our spouse? 
How often do we ask our children or our grandchildren how they are doing? What are they learning at church? What truths are they gleaning from Scripture? What story are they learning? How big is God to them? Who is Jesus Christ? How often do you check on the spiritual health of people here at Countryside? Now, it's easy on Sunday morning to say, hey, how are you doing? No, but really, we should be asking, how, how, how are you really doing? I know it's wild and hectic with the three-service transition going to and from in the 15, 20-minute window there. But stop for a split second and check in on someone, and not merely how their life circumstances are, although that's a great start, but how are you doing spiritually speaking? How's your Bible reading? How is your meditation book of the month plug? Do you talk to your coworkers? Do you talk to your neighbors? I mean, we can all interact with people through text or email, but how often do we do those things face-to-face? I mean, you could start by saying, do you want to go grab coffee tomorrow morning, or do you want to do lunch? Practical ways to see how someone is doing, spiritually speaking. Find the right context, what fits your life and what fits your schedule, and make it happen. Now, why did Paul ask about their faith? Look at verse 5. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would have been in vain. You know this, that our adversary, the serpent, Satan, he walks around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour believers. He's coming after us in any way he can. He's the God of this world, Ephesians 2 tells us. He's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 tells us. He wants to usurp God, Isaiah 14. He is full of iniquity, Ezekiel 28. He is a liar, John 8. He is a murderer, John 8. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one, 1 John. He's the God of this world who seeks to blind the mind of all those who hate Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. He is out to get us. And Paul is sending Timothy to check in on the Thessalonians to see how they're dealing with it, to see how they are handling it. It's interesting what Paul does here, and doesn't necessarily come across in English. But at the beginning of this verse, he uses indicatives. He's simply trying to teach of the certainty with which Satan's onslaught will come. And then he switches to subjunctives to demonstrate, and this is great, to demonstrate that he is confident that Thessalonians are resisting the temptations of the evil one. In other words, Paul's not pessimistic. 
He's optimistic about their faith. He knows the evil one is coming, but he also knows that these believers are being steadfast in the Lord. Paul was confident. He expressed that in chapter 1. They're sounding forth, but excel still more. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. That's Paul's deep concern for their spiritual health or their spiritual matters. Paul was committed to shepherding the Thessalonians, even if it meant staying behind and sending Timothy in his place. He sends in a substitute, and he sends in a substitute, and as he is doing so, he demonstrates several qualities of a faithful and effective shepherd leader. And the truths that he outlined to the Thessalonians would mark them from that day forward as a healthy church that continued to sound forth. They were able to confidently withstand Satan and the attacks and the onslaught that he consistently brought because they were committed to our Lord Jesus Christ. And they knew that without a shadow of a doubt that nothing could separate them from the love of God that was found in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. They knew that no one could snatch them out of God's hands, John 10. And they knew that the Lord Jesus Christ, according to John 17, prayed that their faith would not fail. Well, we've spoken a lot about the Apostle Paul this evening, haven't we? But never let us forget who the shepherd leader par excellence is, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 5, 4, he's called the chief shepherd. In Hebrews 13, 20, he's called the great shepherd of the sheep. And in John 10, probably the most familiar of the shepherd leader motif as it relates to Christ, the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Well, it's interesting. Both letters to the Thessalonians... First and Second Thessalonians, uh, they're sometimes labeled the eschatological epistles, epistles that deal with the end times. And that really is an accurate way to assess these letters. Because if you read through First Thessalonians, at the end of every major section, Paul always brings the second coming into view. This means that although Paul is documenting and relaying present tense realities, the Thessalonians were supposed to respond in such a way that they looked forward to the return of Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Paul says that the Thessalonians are to wait 
for his son from heaven. If you look at chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, We will be with you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. If you look at chapter 3, verse 13, Paul tells them to excel still more until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the end of chapter 4, after he explains the rapture, chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, Be comforted by the rapture. Be comforted by the return of Christ. And then if you look at chapter 5, verse 23, as Paul wraps up this letter, he says, Be blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. May we embrace the qualities of a shepherd leader, and may we be blameless before him until Christ calls us home or until he returns. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and the fact that such a text, such a portion of Scripture is included in the Bible. At first glance, it it seems that it may only be related to those who are in pastoral ministry or those who serve in ministry leadership. But in reality, what Paul outlines for us are several qualities for us to be faithful, biblical Christians. May you ingrain these truths on our hearts so that we would represent you well while we are here on this earth. Help us do so until you call us home or toward the great shepherd, our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.